everyone, and welcome to the Book of Acts series, the second part. Today, we're going to be continuing our conversation on the atmosphere of the early church. What is normal supposed to be for believers, followers of Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus Christ? Uh, last week, we talked uh, a lot about this new thing that he was starting, this new ministry he was calling all of his followers into, that ministry that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. These believers that have become the temple of God, walking about, uh, bringing about a meeting place where people can meet God. And so uh, this in this episode, we're going to be going on, continuing the conversation and and looking at a few things like the baptism of the Holy Spirit, unbelief and its impact on our lives. We're going to talk about generosity, which was a big theme in the early church, but we're also going to talk about greed and then some typical lessons on the uh, on how, how we walk in the spirit. What does that look like and how can we best exercise it? And of course, all of what we're talking about today in Acts chapter three to five is all still playing out in Jerusalem. Now, as the disciples are in Jerusalem, they're continuing to proclaim what has happened, that that Christ has resurrected. We see that there are all of these amazing miracles that start happening through their lives. And one such famous miracle is the one that we are going to be opening this lesson with today. And it is when they meet the the beggar at the gate of the temple called the beautiful gate. Okay, so so as they walk, I'm going to just read to you uh, Acts 3 verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John go about into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him as the John and, and said, look at us. Look at us. It's interesting. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them because he's a beggar asking for money. That's what he's all about right at that moment. But Peter said, I have no silver. I have no gold. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk Wow, what a bold, bold thing to say, right? And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. You know what's really interesting? We see that this man is daily at the temple, right? This is where his, this is his thing. This is how people know him. This is what he does. Okay, this is his place. And at this temple he's sitting at, he is sitting as a man who the scriptures describe as being lame, right? Now, it's really interesting because at this temple, this place, which in the first century is the meeting place where you go to meet God. He is there, but he's outside. He's at the beautiful gate. And many people believe the beautiful gate is a gate that is really one of the way outside walls um, of before you, it's not, it's not like entering, it's before you even enter the court of the women. Um, there's a gate, which many believe was the, the one that was this beautiful gate. So he was really quite far outside and he is begging for a lot of people, you know, coming in and these people are coming to worship God and meet God, but here he is and he's broken. Isn't that sad, right? Like he's at the place of meeting God, but he's broken. But he's about to meet God. You see, but instead, you see, he was not there. It's interesting because he also wasn't really there to worship God. He was there to ask for money. That, as far as we read, that's what it says. A lot of, there's a lot of people coming by there, so it's a good place to ask for money. 
And so when Peter and John come up, he, they, uh, he asks them money. He doesn't ask them, please heal me. He's not like all the other people who Jesus encounters in your New Testament who says, oh, heal me, help me, pray for my daughter, cause out this demon. This guy, he's not asking any of that stuff. He's, he's asking for money. But yet they say, look at us. Now, it's interesting because even though his, his heart was not to believe for God and God for healing, God still did it. God still has grace. God still has mercy. God still sees this man. You see, it means that, you know, we have all these examples of people who had great, who had faith. And Yeshua even told him, Jesus said, your faith has made you well. But then there are these other cases where people had, they didn't exercise faith. This man didn't exercise any faith, except for the fact that when he heard them say, rise up and walk, he did it. It's amazing. God's grace, his mercy on us, he's giving us things before we even ask, right? And that's what he does with this man. Now, you know, what's interesting is even though he's at the temple, right, like I mentioned, what is about to happen is that the temple, you know, the temple is about to arrive. And what I what I mean by the temple is you need to remember that the temple building he was sitting at was only pointing to something greater, right? The Bible teaches us that that building temple we all think of that was built with the hands of men, that was built only to point us to, to remind us of something and point to something. But to what? Peter talked about he's, that Yeshua is going to be building temple of living stones for royal priesthood that you become a part of and you become that temple. And that's why I'm saying that that man who was lame, a temple was approaching him. The temple of Peter, the temple of John. They were walking temples of God and filled with the Holy Spirit. And this building, it was all commanded by God and it was wonderful. But it was all there to point to actually to Peter and John, amongst others who would be filled with his spirit. And so as they arrive, they say, look at us. And the Bible says that the eye is the lamp of the body. So Yeshua, Jesus, he also said, I am the light of the world. But then he also said, you are the light of the world. And a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor can you light a lamp and put it under a basket. That city set on a hill, that is actually a reference to the temple, which was called the city on the hill. The light of the world back then. But see, you are the light of the world is what what Yeshua says. You are living stones. You are that temple. And and that's why they say, look at us. Look at our lamps. Look at the light. Because the lamp is the light of the body. Look at the light. And he looks upon them, right? He looks at, the, looks at them. And then as he perceives the light in their eyes, the fire burning inside them, that fire that landed on their heads in Acts chapter 2, which we read last week. Now he perceives that and and he's filled with hope because that's what's supposed to happen. See, there's a fire in your eyes when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so his man, he sees it and they say, rise up, walk and he, he takes his things and he rises up and he walks. And this is a picture of this coming, this temple of Jesus that has arrived. And this man walks around proclaiming that he was healed by the one who has resurrected. And these men through whom it was done, Peter and John. And he talks to men like the Pharisees who were the keepers of the temple in that day. You know, they were the ones who, who looked after the building and who did ministry there. And he tells them that God, God's temple 
has arrived in human form in, in, in some way because they've healed me. And they don't see it. Those certain Pharisees, they, they criticize, they hate, and they persecute the disciples. The temple of God that God was building, they persecute, even though they're supposed to be the keepers of the temple, the ones who, who look after it. You see, the religious, those who are, let me say, uh, uh, outwardly religious, but dead inside as they were, they hate workings of the spirit because it threatens them and it causes jealousy to bubble up inside them because, well, you can't worship God in spirit, yet desire to build your own kingdom. And so, they needed to give up their own kingdoms to worship God in spirit, but they weren't willing to give up their own kingdoms. They weren't willing to give up what they were building up for themselves using God, God and well, as they thought they were using God, using God as as their religion and as their source of powers. But but none of that would be allowed, of course. But yet, this is why they were incompatible with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so. Another thing that I want us to notice here that's really interesting is that the way that these disciples, Peter and John, are praying is very different. They're not, they're not, it's interesting, right? They're they're not coming to this man who's lame and, okay, guys, we're going to pray for him. And then, okay, and then they pray, you know, okay, God, if it's your will, um, if you really, really, really want to, we pray that you would heal this man. You know, they they don't pray that way. It's interesting, right? They, they Their prayer is, is very bold. It's rise up and walk. I don't have silver and gold. It's like, it's a, a prayer of authority. It's a prayer, it's a prayer of, 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 of belief that God wants to and can do something through them, that God has given them like some sort of a power of attorney, right? That, that they're doing things in the name of him who sent him, them. And so I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, with praying, oh Lord, if you, w- if you want to do this. But see, sometimes we pray that prayer from a place of unbelief and as an escape exit, an emergency exit in case it doesn't happen. Then we can just say, oh, you know what? Shoot, it, it could, I guess it wasn't God's will. You know, but they they spoke and acted in a way where there was no emergency exit for them. You know what I mean? They, they just went and they went ahead in boldness and belief. And they went and they proclaimed in faith, rise up and walk. You see, that's risky. Like, I mean, that's risky, right? For us that we think, well, well, that's like hard because, you know, what if, you know, you, you think the first thing you think is, what if it doesn't happen? And see, the moment you think that you, you demonstrate that you don't have childlike faith. Childlike faith is a faith that a child has. If you have a child, you know, when they're still very young, They'll believe whatever their father tells them is possible. You tell your child it's possible to walk on your head and they'll try it. You, you tell them it's possible to, um, w- to walk on the moon one day and they'll believe that they could do it, right? A parent has words that have immense power in the life of their child because they'll believe anything the parent says. But when we grow up, we start thinking more and sometimes that thinking that we start having is is an intellectual corruption and that that robs us of our faith and and what i just mean is we get too smart for the gospel sometimes because we start thinking all of the things that this world teaches us you know and, and a lot of it is you know fine logic and reason. But the problem is that logic and reason would tell us that it is impossible to do this or that. But yet our God is the God of the impossible, a consuming fire, the one who walks on water, heals the sick, open blinds eyes. The impossible things is the things he do. So when you 
try and intellectually reason, you will fall flat. And, and if you intellectually try and restrict God, even by just the simple things of saying, you know, well, I don't know if God could, what if he doesn't get healed? What if I pray and that's worldly thinking, carnal thinking, fleshly thinking, incompatible with the kingdom and spirit of God and thinking that produces no fruit of the spirit and no miracles. Because God calls us to have childlike faith, a faith that believes everything that the Father says is possible. And he said in his word, it is possible to heal the sick. It is possible. But will we believe that or will we say, what if this, what if that? Right? God, if it's your will, well, now in your prayer, you, you need to be careful in how you pray that nothing wrong with a sequence of words per se. But if your heart behind it is, if it's your will, just so that I can make the excuse if it wasn't when it doesn't happen, instead of looking towards my own heart and looking in search of maybe there's unbelief there. Because unbelief is a real issue we battle too. But it's easier and more convenient to blame God for when it doesn't happen, right? I'm just saying that that we need to just be careful on on how, what our heart is behind our prayers because here we clearly see the heart of Peter and John was faith, trust, belief. Childlike, some will would say a foolish, irresponsible kind of faith. Rise up and walk. Wow, how bold, but yet the father showed up and what a miracle it ended up becoming. Okay, Um, another thing that's interesting about this is that we see that this is a man who was, it says in the scriptures, sitting at the gate daily, right? This man who was sick. Um, That means that there's a very big possibility that Yeshua passed him by. And, And what I mean by that is, if he was daily at the gate, this is where he is. And Jesus was one who was oftentimes at the temple because it's written so many times in our Bible. And that's just about where it's written. that He was at the temple. Now, I mean, there's a good possibility. Obviously, we can't prove it, but there's a possibility that he walked by that man. But even if, you know, we, we don't know, maybe, maybe not, but... The fact of the matter is, I guess what I want to highlight is that there are people that Yeshua did not heal in his ministry. And it's just just the obvious thing of not everyone in Jerusalem was healed because he was in town. In fact, it, it even is written that he did not do many miracles in that place because of their unbelief. That's in one place. But then there are other situations where, you know, we just don't know, but the obvious thing is that not everyone was healed. And I, I guess my point is just that in Scripture, we do see, you know, we, we talked about the will of God just now earlier, but we also do see in the life of Yeshua that everyone who came to him, who asked for healing, every time it's recorded that he healed, he didn't turn them down. But it's also true that he didn't heal everyone in town. So the will of God is a mystery and his perspective is so much higher and his ways are higher and it's difficult to grasp and understand his ways. And we we won't while we're on earth because he he sees things that we don't. And he sees the th- impacts of certain actions. Remember that uh, man who was healed of blindness and they asked, why was he born blind? Was it him or his parents' sin? And Yeshua said, no, it's for the works of God to be displayed in him, for the glory of God to be for, for to be displayed. And so we see that this man was actually born blind for the day he would be healed, for the witness he would become through that healing that you and me are today, 2,000 years, still talking about. I guess my point is just, that's just one example, but there are so many things that are working towards for the glory of God that are difficult to understand, but yet are worth it in the end. At the end of the day, even that blind man, if you meet him one day in um, the kingdom of God, 
when we're in eternity, you know, he may just tell you, you know what, it was worth it to be born blind because I got to become part of the story of the gospel, part of the reasons of how people learned about Christ and even met him through learning through about his miracles that he did even for a man like me. Just maybe that man would even tell you that. And but one day there will be a day in eternity where all will be healed. All will be uh, well, regardless of our temporary status, because all this is temporary. You know, your even your healing today, if you are healing today, even is temporary because this body will die. It will be destroyed. It will vanish. It will become like the dust. But we, our spirit, our soul will be with Yeshua in eternity and we will be resurrected and receive a new body. And so there is an eternal hope that awaits us all. Even that we should always keep in mind, even in the midst of this conversation about healing. Okay, Um, right. So uh, let's read a bit further about what happens. Acts 3.15 Peter gets up, right, and he talks to the crowds and he explains to them what happened here. You know, this man got healed and why it happened. So it teaches us that when a miracle takes place through us, it's important for us to explain why. So the people receive the knowledge, not just see a miracle. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, Peter says. To this we are witness and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Christ has given them the man this perfect health and the presence of you all interesting isn't it we see that this proclamation of the gospel i want to submit to you is very important and that that it creates an environment where miracles are more prevalent you will find that gospel centric ministries. Okay, let me just explain what I mean by that. You get ministries today of all sorts, but you get ministries that are gospel centric and ministries that aren't. Yeshua's ministry was a ministry that was gospel centric. He proclaimed the good news of the plan of salvation of what God was bringing upon the world. And so if that is our central message today, it will produce a ministry of miracles. Because the reason that God, one of the main reasons that God gave the gift of healing or or the gift of speaking in tongues or the gift of words of knowledge or any kind of these spiritual gifts of that produce miracles, the re, one of the main reasons they were given were to be a witness of the gospel message. And so if we divorce the gospel message from these miracles, in other words, we do the miracles, but don't proclaim the gospel. What are those miracles for? Right. And I want to submit to you that those miracles become more rare in ministries that are less gospel centric because the spirit is more eager to move in miraculously and supernaturally in the midst of the preaching of the gospel, because that's what he loves to encourage and demonstrate as truth. So one of the key things in your ministry is make sure that you're not, you know, there's a lot of things to proclaim, brothers and sisters. There's a lot of things going on in this world. But are you proclaiming, is your ministry a ministry of proclaiming the gospel first and foremost? Otherwise, we shouldn't be too surprised if the spirit doesn't show up in power to confirm that message because we're not proclaiming the message that needs to be confirmed. Right. Okay. Now we go in Acts 4.16 and we're going to discover how, how these uh, Pharisees react. Acts 4.16. They're saying among themselves, what shall we do of these men? For that a noble, notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak not to anyone anymore in this name. It's a great example of how 
even being a witness of the miraculous is not enough always to persuade someone of whatever you desire for them to be persuaded of, including the legitimacy of the resurrection. You know, so like I mentioned earlier, the keepers of the temple, these Pharisees, were unable to recognize the work of the temple. That is to bring healing to the nations. That was what even then they knew that that's what the temple is supposed to accomplish, a place where healing flows from to the nations. But yet when this was happening through the disciples, their temples, they could not see that, right? And so, you know, this reminds me about something today, modern and modern times. What I have noticed is that sometimes we have said, oh, you know, if only these people could see this miracle, like we, we hope for something to happen, like we hope for this miracle. We, we think in our minds, we think, oh, if only God would heal this person, if only God would raise that person, if only God would do this or do this thing, right? Then this person or these people would witness it and then they will follow God or or then they will become people who will want the Holy Spirit in their own life more and, and, and not reject the Spirit as they have been and who will then desire to walk in the Spirit more. If only they could witness it, right? We, we come up with all of these things. But Yeshua said the following, Luke eleven twenty nine. when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. You see, if we are a people who are saying we believe in the resurrection, that's a big deal. Okay, to, to say that you believe that 2000 years ago there was someone who was raised from the dead and you have faith that that happened based off what you know, the evidence presented to you, that's a big deal. That's a, that's a big thing to believe in for anyone. And so for us to believe in that is amazing. And it's, it's a gift of faith. But now what, here's my question. Why is it? How could it be that we say we believe in something as amazing and crazy of a miracle as a man being raised from the dead three days later? But then when it comes to the miraculous of God doing something like healing a person here or there or, or speaking through someone in a gift of prophecy or giving a word of knowledge to someone or speaking in tongues or any gift of today, any miraculous supernatural thing today, how can we say we believe in a resurrection, but that's hard to believe in. And, and I want to submit to you that just like these Pharisees who could not believe when it was happening right in front of them, this is how it is with this generation today. There are many today who, who even would say, oh, I believe in God. Because just like these Pharisees who believed in God, they say, oh, I believe in God. They, they were keepers of the temple, but yet when there were miracles happening in front of their face by God, they didn't even recognize that. They couldn't believe that. And in the same way, people today, oh, I believe in the resurrection. But then yet when we get to these things and we say, oh, you know, if only they could see this and that miracle, they'll believe. I tell you, if they won't even believe what is written in the word, they won't believe what is written, what, what happens in front of them. If they say, I believe in a resurrection was, which was written down, but yet they don't believe in the miraculous happening today, then even a sign will not be the thing that makes them believe. That's my point. You see, and Yeshua said, when the crowds were increasing, he said what he said. This says something to us. He was getting skeptical when the crowds were getting big skeptical he 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 thought to himself this generation they seek a sign they're an evil generation they're multiplying they're multiplying but and they're coming together they're coming here but even though they're coming here with their bodies and they they act like they're interested their hearts are hearts of unbelief 
that seek some sort of a sign. They want to be proven to that they need to believe in X, Y, and Z. Now, if the word, the living word standing in front of them was not enough, there would be nothing that could convince them. And if the living word that's in your hand is not enough, nothing else would convince you. And so there is a place for the miraculous. But if you look at the the Bible, you'll see that in the cases where this is used as a demonstration that points to the truth, it is usually for those who are the meek, the humble, the poor, the contrite in spirit, those who do not really know God, the unlearned. But those who were learned, those who were the like the Pharisees, certain Pharisees who came against him, these men who had pride, they were the ones who could not see, even though they were learned and even though they know the Bible and even though they thought they knew God. And so we see that this demonstration of the spirit was taken more so by Yeshua to the poor communities and those who were who did, who did not know and have the knowledge of the truth. Because if they were to receive the knowledge, he knew that they would believe. OK, so brothers, sisters, I want to show you another example about what I'm saying, just so you can understand about how important this belief that we're talking about today is. We see in John 20, verse 29, another example, and, and you all know this. This is about Thomas. We, we read Yeshua saying, Yeshua said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Wow, that's a big deal. You know, it's, it's on the same train of thought we've been talking about. If you have not seen him, you have not seen the miracles, you have not seen the signs, and but yet you still believe. That is the key to receiving, like he said, blessing from God. And what kind of a blessing? What kind of blessing is he talking about? In this very chapter, we realize what Thomas missed out on. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Many people then realize that Thomas missed out on the baptism of the Holy Spirit in this chapter. Let me show you. We read in John 20, verse 22. And when that when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Right. Speaking to his disciples. And then in verse 24, we read now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. He was not in the room. Christ came into the room. He knew Thomas wasn't there. He breathed on them so that they can be baptized in the spirit. And then Thomas meets the disciples later. The disciples tell Thomas, we have seen Jesus. And what does he say? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. Wow. Wow. What, what unbelief, right? His insistence to see caused him to miss out on that encounter that the rest of the disciples had because God knew of his unbelief. That's why he was not in the room. That's why Yeshua didn't wait for him to be with the disciples before he showed up to baptize them in the Holy Spirit. And he misses out. He's not there. It doesn't happen to him. Now, I I don't know. I'm not going to say that Thomas never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I am just saying at least in this instance, he missed out on this blessing that the rest of the disciples received. And that in and of itself is a big deal that should make us really think about our faith. Do we believe what we say we believe? Because you can proclaim and profess with your mouth today, oh, I believe in the resurrection. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe just like every, almost everyone in America says. But do you actually believe? Because Thomas believed with his said he believed with his mouth, but when it then came to Yeshua actually dying on the cross, he didn't believe that he could raise. 
And so you can say, oh, no, I believe he raised. But do you then believe that he still does the things he did back there today? Because if not, how much do you really believe in a living God that is miraculous, supernatural, powerful, and even works in your life, in your midst, through you today, if you allow his spirit to indwell you like Thomas did not? Will you be unlike Thomas and believe so that Yeshua can breathe on you, for you to receive. All right. And you know what's interesting is that when we start reading this, you'll notice in, in Acts chapter 4 that just in this chapter, the Holy Spirit was poured out two, two times. Like two times, just in this chapter. And not only um, in this chapter it happened, but it happened multiple times in the Word. In this chapter... Uh, we see, for example, that it happened in um, Acts 4, verse 8, right when they when the disciples appeared before the Sanhedrin. Okay, it says that, and Peter was filled with the Spirit, and then he spoke. Right? So there was a, a filling of the Spirit as he spoke in this boldness, knowing what to say, and the Spirit speaking through him. And then we also have another example here next in Acts uh, 4.29. And the disciples are together and they're praying to God and they say the following, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and, and grant to your service to continue to speak your word of full boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed for the name of your holy servant, Yeshua. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God of boldness. Wow, so we see that here they're filled. When they're before the Sanhedrin, Peter is filled. We just talked earlier about the disciples, you know, when Thomas wasn't there, but the rest of the disciples were there. Yeshua breathed on them and they were filled. We read in Acts chapter 2, like we did last week, how this all these people, you know, they were filled. So we see there are these, these continuous outpourings happening as these people are seeking God. You know, like in Acts 4 that we just read, they're praying, they're saying, God, oh Lord, do your signs and your wonders and heal. And, and they're seeking the Holy Spirit's wonders in their midst because they know they need Him. They need, They rely on Him. And so it tells us that there's this special anointing and gift that can happen to us. Even if we've been filled with the Holy Spirit before, there can be another filling that happens, like with Peter, just before he spoke to the Sanhedrin, that gives him a special anointing, a gift of wisdom, maybe. Maybe it's a gift of healing that you need in that moment when there's a sick person in front of you. The Spirit can fill you and empower you to, to with everything you need in that moment. Uh, whatever it is, He can empower you and fill you. But you need to seek Him. And uh, we also notice that these events, these fillings of the Spirit that we encounter in the Scripture now, are separate from salvation. Note how these are not events where these people are coming to salvation. Oh, we're coming to faith in Christ. No, these men are already faithful. They already believe in Him. And then the Spirit comes in these other instances and fills them. And so I just feel today right now, I just feel the Holy Spirit putting it on my heart to just speak to you into your house and to where you are right now. Father, I pray right now where everyone who is listening today or sitting, Holy Spirit, you would enter in the name of Yeshua, enter their rooms, enter their places and enter their bodies. Fill them with you. Lord, Holy Spirit, come and empower them with your, your power, your gifts, your freedom so that wherever they go, they would be people who proclaim and become freedom for others. Father, help us like the disciples prayed for 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 the gift of healing and the wonders as and, and signs. Lord, we pray that in our midst and where everyone is right now is listening and you would come with signs and wonders and healing and freedom. And fill them with your spirit. Pour it out on them, Lord. Shake the places they are to pour out your spirit upon them. Amen, amen, amen. Lord, hallelujah. Do it again, Father. All right. And so 
This all goes without saying that it is okay to seek the upbringing of the Spirit more than once in your life. Seek it continuously. In Acts chapter 4, 34, we're now going to be reading about the church in terms of generosity. One of the biggest things that you may have noticed last week what we went through in uh, Acts chapter 1 to 2, we noticed about this great generosity that was within the church. It was written that people just came and brought great offerings and they distributed and they cared for one another. It was amazing. And so we're now going to see another hallmark of this, of what the body of believers are supposed to be like. And what we read is the following in Acts 4.34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Wow. I mean, isn't that just incredible? Joseph comes and he sells a field. Like imagine something that you own that is valuable, like something that's a property, which is to, it's one of the most valuable things that you can own, right? Back then, same thing. Property was valuable. And he sells it and he takes the proceeds. He takes the money and he takes it to where God has led him. And he deposits it into the kingdom of God. And I mean, this is a hallmark of what a spirit-filled believer looks like. You see, when you are spirit-filled, this is going to happen in you. You're going to start changing from a person who in the world, you know, we the world is greedy. The world looks after itself and its own. But yet in the kingdom of God, the spirit of God puts this this heart of generosity in us to give whatever we can, whatever God has gifted to us. We understand nothing is ours. It's just the, what he has given us. And and we give back into his kingdom. And and this is really the a hallmark, this radical generosity. And, you know, brothers and sisters, what's interesting for me is I, I sometimes have found people, you know, they, they argue about giving a lot. You know, people, uh, I have oftentimes seen people argue about, you know, how much should we give? Should we tithe the 10%? You know, should we give so much? You know, you know what's funny for me is you know I, I when I look at this whole thing, when we are start arguing about whether we should give ten percent or not, I think that that's just demonstrating that our hearts are far from ready for any of what <laughs> the Holy Spirit really wants to do in us. Because you see, this man was giving not ten percent; he was selling a field which was probably way more than 10% of his value and his worth. But yet he joyously, with a cheerful heart, comes to the Father and he gives it. Man, don't you know, don't argue about whether you should give 10%. Don't debate in your heart over the 10%. Give more. Give as God leads. You know, I'm not, I'm not putting a law on this, but I'm saying... Man, like the spirit of God will there will be come there will come a time, you know, it's happened to me. It may happen to you. There may come a day where God's like, hey, Petey, I want you to give a hundred percent this month. A hundred percent. Imagine if God came to you and said, This month I'm your your paycheck a hundred percent, a hundred percent, give it to God. Man, like wherever he leads you to give that. Be obedient to that voice and do it. He will take care of you. He will bless you. Like, you know, and, I, and I'm not, you know, people, they, they don't like it when people, when people talk about money, when, when, when preachers talk about money, go give it to a ministry that God puts on your heart. This is not me asking for money. I am teaching, I'm saying, give to God as he tells you to give. 
because it is so important for us to be obedient to his voice in this. Now, you know what's interesting? If we can't give financially, which, by the way, is is a wonderful thing, but is not even as big of a thing to give when it compares to our life. If we cannot give financially, however he instructs us, how can we give our life? How can we give him our life? If you can't give him 10% as if he put 10% on your heart, how can you give him your life and say you're a living sacrifice? You're not a living sacrifice. How can you, if he asks you to give 20% this month and you don't, how can you say you're a living sacrifice? You're not a living sacrifice. You're living for yourself. See, brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, you need to believe that, that every dollar in my bank account is what God has given me, what he has blessed me with. And none, there would not be a dollar in my bank account if it's not for God allowing me to have it. For God, for not, if it's not for God providing for me. And when you have that mentality, you understand that it's all actually his. He's, you're just being a steward of his resources. It changes everything. And, and that means that if God is God, he's really the king of the universe. You don't think he can provide for you if you give something up? Because giving is an act of trusting God. I can give today something that that I have, that I own, but I believe that tomorrow that God will provide for me, even in, even in a different, unconventional way maybe, but he still will provide. This is what trust is, and God wants to build this trust with you. He wants to teach you, but you're not going to learn this if you don't give. Okay, so wherever he, he puts in your heart, give there. How much he puts in your heart, give that amount. But... Just as one last thing on this whole tithing issue, two things. That woman who Yeshua met, you know, she was at the temple giving just a little bit, right? And the disciples saw it and Yeshua said she gave more than anyone else here. Why does he say that? He says it because she gave more than 10%. She doesn't own a lot. But yet she gave so much. How, who knows how much that was to her, what that percentage was. It was a lot, and that's why Yeshua pointed it out. And that's what he delights in. He delights in someone who gives whatever the Lord has put on their heart to give. And so let's stop arguing over tithing. And the one who argues over that is a man who has a heart of greed. Let's look to something higher. But yet, if you're interested in learning more about Is Tithing for Today, go have a look at my teaching called Is Tithing for Today, because there I go into detail more about this topic. All right, so let's now uh, read a little bit on. You know what's funny about this is Joseph's great sacrifice is the preface to like this great story of generosity is the preface to a great story of greed. It's like God is contrasting it to us because now we see Anna, the story of Ananias and Sapphira come right after him. Because Ananias sees Joseph. He sees that Joseph gives his, sells his old land and gives it to God's kingdom. That's a big deal. But what does he do? He goes and he sells his land he takes the proceeds just like Joseph did. And he says, here is my proceeds. And he, he puts it on the table. But yet he lies about how much he sold the land for. That's what he lies about. How much was the land sold for? He says it was all of this money. He's giving 100% all that money now. That's what he's telling them. But yet uh, he's lying to the Holy Spirit. And this is what Peter calls out. And in Acts 5, verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The sin was not that Ananias didn't give everything. The sin was that he lied about how much he gave. But see, 
the reason is, is there was this all tells us there's a motivation behind Ananias's giving that was impure, that was evil. He saw Joseph. He saw Joseph got, you know, maybe people were like, wow, praise God and all that. And then Ananias was like, hey, I want that. I want that praise of men. I want that social status, religious status, status in the church. I want to get something out of this. And that's likely why he did what he did. He didn't give generously from his heart because why else would he lie about it, right? Because he wanted to get something out of it. For, he thought he could deceive to get more recognition out of this whole thing, right? And so as he does this, he falls down and dies, like just dies right there. And his wife lies at the same and she falls down and dies right there. Same thing. They both die. You know, many people say, oh, God changed. God, uh, you know, God of the God of the Old Testament was the angry God and God of the New Testament is the God that's all gracy and he doesn't, God didn't change. And when it comes to things serious enough, God can still today snap his finger and your heart can stop and you fall down dead. God is the same, okay? And this tells us, God's reaction to this shows us how crazy evil and how serious this is and how serious we should take it when we try and do in God's kingdom things for ourselves. In other words, we try and build our own kingdom using God's name, using God's commandments, using religion, if you will, like those certain Pharisees who came against Yeshua, they try to do that. And he's making a statement now. He's saying, in this new kingdom I am building, this kingdom on earth, this new church I'm starting, this is not going to happen here. I am going to deal harshly with anyone who decides to do this for themselves and who enter this kingdom with greed. And that's why, brothers and sisters, earlier I was so serious about giving, talking to you about that, because this is something that money is something that tells a lot about our hearts. That's what says money. Uh, um, the love of money is the root of all evil, right? So if you love money, that is you are incompatible with the gospel. You're incompatible with God's kingdom because you have a heart that is not just in love of money, but probably in love with the world, the things that money buy. That's what you really love, the world. But the one who is willing to give up the th money and therefore the things that money buy, you're stating that I love God's kingdom more than the kingdom of this world. And I love God's kingdom more than my kingdom. But yet Ananias and Zephyr were trying to use money as a statement of saying we love God's kingdom more, but even there they were lying about it and actually they loved their own kingdoms more. They loved what their money, their money could buy more. They loved the status in the church more that they were trying to achieve. Whatever else they were wanting to have, they loved more than God's kingdom. And they were blaspheming his Holy Spirit by trying to lie to his spirit about this. Do not lie to God. Okay, so why do you serve in fellowship? Why do you want to teach the word of God? Why do you want to be in ministry? Why do you make an offering? Why do you want to give financially or in any other way that you give or help and build God's kingdom? Why do you do so? That motivation is everything. It's more important than the reason, than, than, than what you give itself. Because see, Ananias and Zephyr, Zephyr thought to themselves, well, look, I mean, we're giving so much, even if we're lying about how much we're still giving a lot. So that's probably going to outweigh the bad about the lie of how much we gave. But yet the motivation of why they gave was actually an even bigger deal than how much they gave. Let me say that again. The motivation of why they gave was an even bigger deal of the amount than the amount. So worry less about how much you give and more about why. Make sure that how, in how much you're giving, your heart behind it is absolutely pure. Do not give more, and then but your heart behind it is impure because I want to be seen. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, is what the scripture said. Right? Don't, don't give with this hand while this hand wants to take something, something else in return. 
give freely because you've received freely from the Lord. Okay, amen, amen. Praise God for that. Thank you, Lord. Okay, so and we live in an America and in a society that in the mainstream America, we have a lot of Ananias and Sapphira. We have a lot of Ananias and Sapphiras running around. Uh, even in the mainstream world, we have people who are trying to gain political influence by saying they're Christians and, oh, you know, we love God and, oh, you know, look how we're going to church and look how much we give to the church and look how much we, whatever. You have people who are doing, who go to church for social acceptance. This is this all this time itself. People who go to church just because that's the cool thing to do. Maybe that's becoming less of a thing, but that's because we are want to be seen as upright, good business people or families. So we go to church for that reason, or we give for that reason, or we even have companies today who are so steeped in commercialization, they've tried to commercialize the gospel. And so there are many forms that this whole thing can take. But I guess regardless, what we can all agree on and see is that this is a very dangerous area to fool around in. If we look at what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. So let's, when it comes to when it comes to greed and when it comes to God's kingdom, let's make sure that we keep greed away from his kingdom and our hearts. And let's make sure that we serve his kingdom and give up something, whether it's time, energy or finance. Make sure whatever you give up, you give up with a pure heart without expectation of getting something in return for that. God will bless you. But just be careful of your heart. The heart is deceitfully wicked and evil. Who can know it? So ask God to show him what your heart is. I'm going to read on as we start uh, ending this off here. Acts 5 verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them. But the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on, might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. You know, what's really interesting about this is that this... Tell, Acts chapter 5 tells us about the atmosphere of the early church, that there were signs and wonders that were regularly done in the midst of the people. Is that happening today? We have to ask ourselves, what has changed? Did, did these things become less important? Did, did they pass away? It says that the result of these signs and wonders was that in verse 14, it says, more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Like, a lot of people came to the Lord because of this. Because the meek and the humble of the earth saw truth, and they wanted to have a part of that. And the main two main ways it says that this all happened was by the healing of the sick and the casting out of demons. The same thing that was happening in Yeshua's ministry most. Healing sick people and casting out demons. And we see that this is a these were the primary or primary ways of being a witness. So whenever we say we're struggling to be a witness to the lost, we have to ask ourselves as a body of believers, as the church, if you will, we have to ask ourselves, are we casting out demons and are we healing the sick? Because that's what the disciples were doing. That's what Yeshua was doing often. It's not the only gifts out there. And there are many other important gifts. But when it comes to being a witness to the lost, we see that these two gifts are a forefront. Okay, and I want to submit to you that uh, people today who are are running to the new age, who are, you know, running into witchcraft, as we see so many people doing today. um, Obviously, there are many reasons they do that, but one of which are that they're not getting in the faith of Christianity that which they are getting in the occult. And what I mean by that is, our spirit, we are a spiritual people. Humans have spirits, and that we have a, a need to be spiritual. And 
It's like we are born for this. We are born to be filled with the Spirit. We are born to be witnesses of the Spirit. We are born to have God work through us powerfully. And that's why you get so excited when you read about it, because it's what you were made and born for. And so when people don't find that in the church, they go outside the church into New Age and occult practice because there's seeming power there. It's like when they don't see Moses' staff turning into a snake, but they do see Pharaoh's staff that turn into a snake. Well, okay, well, Pharaoh's staff, these, they got power, so let's, let's go there, let's see, look and listen to their teaching. But no, Moses' staff turned into a snake too. So you can see, well, Moses' snake ate the Pharaoh's snake. Just like if, our, if we're actually busy casting out demons, the people would see, well, there is actually authority we have over the occult in the new age. And they won't know, want to go into those practices because they see that the kingdom of God has power over it and the ability to give freedom and that there is an avenue for them to be filled with the Spirit and used by God the way that they feel they want to, but they can't put their finger on that hole in their heart that is there. So, yeah, brothers and sisters, this is another reason why it is so important for us to, to yearn to become like this church we're reading about in the book of Acts that is seemingly so foreign and far away from mainstream Christianity, but yet so essential if we want to see a revival break out. Become that revival by becoming what you're reading and what we're reading here today. Okay. So we now see again, after this, the disciples are again arrested. They're again put in, we see they're put in prison. And now we see the story where the angel comes. They open the door. They they bust the disciples out of prison. And then they go back into the, at the temple and they preach there. They continue going on. And then the high priest, they see, oh, look, they're at the temple. They're there again. And they, they go and they approach them. But they're afraid of the people. They're afraid of getting stoned. So they kind of tone it down and they approach their disciples. And they say the following. Acts 5.29. Uh, Peter and the, the other apostles uh, answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Verse 33. And when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and they took counsel to slay them. It's interesting, right? We see again the same thing happen, that uh, they are again bearing witness of the gospel message alongside the miraculous that happens to them. If you don't bear witness of the gospel, don't expect the miraculous to happen, like we said. So here is another example of that. You know, you slew him, you hanged him on a tree, believe in Yeshua is what they're saying. But now it's also saying something interesting that they were when the, the Pharisees, those certain Pharisees heard this, they were cut to the heart. Just like in Acts 2, remember last week we read Acts 2, after Peter stood up and spoke, they were cut, the people were cut to the heart. After he told them, you, you put him on the cross, you killed him, right? You, your sins put him on the cross, and so I can proclaim the same to you, and we can proclaim the same, that there are sins I've put him on the cross. And they're cut to the heart. And these Pharisees are cut to the heart. But the reaction is very different. Those men in Acts 2, 3,000 were baptized that day. But here, their hearts, they were cut to the heart, but the reaction is different. See, in Acts 2, they had hearts of flesh. And the Spirit could cut into them and, and, and eventually fill them. But... These certain Pharisees had hearts of stone. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit can't enter a stone. See, we need to be, our hearts need to be transformed by God. Like it's prophesied in Ezekiel, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so we need to find that person who has, who is a person of peace, who has a heart of flesh, who is able to receive the gospel. Because those are the people that God is sending us to. We proclaim to all, but those are the people who will receive it. And uh, so, brothers and sisters, last thing as I end this off, read the story of Gamaliel in Acts 5, verse 34. And Gamaliel rises up, and many of you know he is held in honor by all. He gets up and he basically tells them, hey guys, if, if this 
these disciples are of God, leave them alone, lest you come against God. But if they're not of God, let's leave them alone because they will fall away. They will Their movement will stop and cease to be, be anything. Just like all these other movements who have become, who were not of God and have ceased to be. Gamaliel is wise. And it's true that God is in control of these things. That if something is of God, it will last. If it is not of God, it will fail. It will be exposed and it will fall away. But one thing that's beautiful is that God was able to work in the heart of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was a very smart um, first century teacher. And he was the teacher of Paul, the apostle, before Paul became a disciple of Christ. But yet Paul did not follow Gamaliel's advice, as you can understand, because Paul did not leave them alone, like Gamaliel said we should, they should. Instead, Paul went ahead and persecuted the church. And so as we, if, as we read on, and maybe next week or the week thereafter, we're going to get to Paul's story. And we realize that God was actually in this way, and speaking to Gamaliel's heart, trying to reach Paul's heart and having mercy even on Paul there. But God was not going to relent. He was not going to give up on Paul. He was going to chase Paul down. And as we will read soon, God would meet Paul on the road to Damascus. So, brothers and sisters, uh, I'm going to read this last verse to you for you, Acts 5.41. And they left the presence of the council. The disciples left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And so I want to submit to you that it is a blessing to receive persecution, as Christ said. And he said that if you are persecuted, do not be shocked because they persecuted me first. So if you're persecuted, that means that you are being an image bearer of Christ because the world hates him, hated him first. And so they will hate you. And so when things are hard and difficult, do not do not relent. Do not think that it is the end. Do not um, give up, but keep pushing on. And remember that you are blessed. Rejoice when you bear this in his name. So I hope that this has blessed you. Wow, this was a, a teaching full of meat, but I hope it has blessed you with a revelation on on what it can look like to be a disciple. And I pray that um, as you stick with me, we're going to continue through this book of Acts. And next week, we're going to be discovering even more of these treasures. So subscribe to this YouTube channel to stay tuned for the next episode. Like this video, share it with your friends and um, may the Father bless you.